today we move into part five of our series on the Beatitudes. I wanted to uh, point something out uh, real quick just in case uh, so that you can use this if you want to. Uh, Maybe you're here today and you didn't download the notes or you um, uh, are at home and and haven't accessed them. We've got another way for you to access the handout, the sermon notes. Um, Of course, they're always posted on the website, but if you have the Bible app, who here has the Bible app? Anybody? All right. If you've got the Bible app, you can access our sermon notes. Uh, It's one more way to access them electronically. If you go to the Bible app, if you've got a device like mine, mine's an Apple device, you can click more down at the bottom, and uh, then it'll take you to uh, this, this page, a menu page, and you can click on events. And as long as your location services are enabled, Wall Highway Baptist Church is going to be one of the events nearby. You click on that, and the sermon notes will pop up. Now, if you have an account that you've signed in on, if you do your devotionals and that sort of thing there, you can actually edit the notes as we go along. The outline will be there, the supporting scriptures, the main text will be there, uh, Bible passage, but you can edit those. But just remember, if you start editing, make sure you click save, because uh, if you don't click save, it won't save your work, and you won't be able to download that later. You can download it, print it, keep it, whatever you want to do. But that's just one more way to access the notes. I've been meaning to mention, I think we've been doing it for about three weeks now, and I keep forgetting to announce it. But that's, again, another way uh, to access notes electronically if you choose to do that. Again, today we're in part five of our, our series on the Beatitudes, To Be or Not To Be. And uh, we're going to continue this journey through uh, the rest of these Beatitudes as Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, the inner qualities of a true disciple. In 1974, as a matter of fact, on September the 8th of 1974, uh, President Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. And it was a very controversial decision. It was an incredible act of mercy considering all that had been done. But he chose to pardon President Nixon on that day. And of that decision in a a broadcast, a televised broadcast, this is what Ford said. He said that the Nixon family situation was a tragedy in which all have played a part. It could go on and on and on or someone must write an end to it. I've concluded, he said, that only I can do that, and if I can, I must. He was criticized immensely for that decision when he did it. Um, He felt it was the right decision. It had an immediate benefit for Nixon, of course, but it also had a benefit for the American people, which is ultimately why he made that decision. He knew that it needed to stop, that that the ongoing saga had to stop and that he could stop it uh, instead of watching a president go through a trial, televised trial, and all that would follow. Uh, It was a controversial decision, and most believe that's uh, the main reason he lost the 1976 election. Well, in 2001, he was awarded uh, the John F. Kennedy uh, Profile and Courage Award at the Kennedy Center. And uh, I believe it was at the Kennedy Center. And uh, he was given this award specifically for that decision to pardon Nixon. And Senator Ted Kennedy spoke there and, and made an interesting comment. He said that when initially Ford had decided to do that, to pardon Nixon, he was against it. But it, he admitted that it became obvious that history had shown it was the correct decision. So finally, that decision, which was made for the good of the country at sacrifice to himself, was awarded. An act of mercy, which is exactly what it was, um, not deserved, it was rewarded, finally. Well, that, that's what we're talking about today in the fifth beatitude. An act of mercy that is rewarded. And that's what Jesus said. Blessed are those who are merciful, so that, for they shall receive mercy. An act of mercy that is rewarded. This is the fifth beatitude. The first four, as we've established going into this, deal with our relationship to God. We've walked through those four. Those who are poor in spirit are blessed because they recognize their poverty uh, before God. They recognize their condition in sin. Uh, they are humbled by that. They mourn over their sin. They humble themselves before God. And then as a result, they gain a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Those four deal directly with my relationship to God. All of them inner qualities of a true disciple. But the last 
4, beginning with this, blessed are those who are merciful, they really deal with the character, the inner character of a Christian, of a follower of Christ. They deal with who I am on the inside and as a result affect how I relate to other people. Mercy is first because that's the first thing we receive from Jesus, isn't it? If we come to Christ, if we accept him, the first thing we receive is mercy. And again, verse 7, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, what's the first act of mercy we receive? Well, Jesus has mercy on us when he saves us because what we deserve as punishment for our sin is eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. But instead of giving us what we deserve, he withholds punishment from us. He he withholds that eternal separation. Instead, he gives us grace. He gives us eternal life. So, What this beatitude tells us is that since we have received mercy, now we should show mercy to others. And in doing so, we receive more mercy. I don't know about you, but I need mercy every day. We all need mercy every day. And the people in our lives need mercy. And we're called to show mercy just as we have received mercy. And there are steps that we can take in order to become more merciful. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, the steps we need to take. Number one is this. First, you have to receive mercy. If I'm going to show mercy, I've got to receive mercy. I I can't give you something that I don't have. And so if I'm going to show mercy, the first step is to receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says. Now, in our culture, mercy has disagreed to a, a large extent. We say that we're tolerant and we're permissive, but mercy, our ability to show mercy is directly or is in direct conflict with our ability to receive mercy. Uh, it requires humility to receive mercy, and humility isn't at the top of the list in most cases. Uh, our ability to be good, genuinely good, not fake, but genuinely good, stands in conflict with our ability to show mercy and to receive mercy. Some people say they are followers of Christ, but they don't really know what mercy is because they've never really received mercy. They may say all the right things, but there's no mercy evident in their lives because, chances are, they've never received, they've never truly received mercy. And there are so many voices in our culture that speak against mercy. You know, go out and make a name for yourself. You know, accomplish something big for yourself. You deserve this or you deserve that vacation. You deserve that new car or that new house or whatever it is that you want. You, 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 me, me, me. And, and while none of those things in and of themselves are bad, uh, you know, advertisements speak to this, don't they? You know, you deserve a break, or that's an old slogan, but that shows how old I am. Uh, but, you know, all these advertisements feed on this, this idea that I deserve what I want. I deserve. But that attitude of deserving is in conflict with mercy, isn't it? Because mercy, the idea of mercy is that, is that you know, I'm, not getting, I'm getting grace instead of what I actually deserve. You know, it's something that I can't earn. It's something that, it's an act of of grace that that I don't deserve. It's being spared from what I actually do. So if I've got it in my head that I deserve all of these great things, that I've earned all of these great things, that's in conflict with mercy. I mean, you even hear it in the church. You know, you talk about somebody who, who, who dies, you know, someone, longtime church member, faithful servant of the Lord, and you hear something to the effect of, well, if Mr. Jones, if anybody's going to get into heaven, it's Mr. Jones. Think of all the good he did. But that's not what it's all about at all, is it? Getting into heaven has nothing to do what, what, with what I have or haven't done. It's all to do with what Jesus did, his death, his resurrection. It's His forgiveness that I have received, all I did was believe in him. He did all the work. You know, if I got what I deserved, it would be hell, no matter how much good I've done in life, because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so we've kind of been hardwired to reject the idea of mercy, to to make it on our own, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and not admit that we need any help. Deserving, this idea of deserving stands in conflict with mercy, but mercy is actually something that we cry out for in desperation. 
It's not something we cry for, we ask for because we've earned. You think about when you're a kid on the playground, somebody beats the tar out of you until you cry what? Mercy, uncle, same thing. <laughs> but it's, a, it's a mercy. You know, say mercy or say uncle. That you're, you're begging for because you know you've been overpowered. And you know, I was the youngest of, of, of I was the youngest of four cousins, and they they would just. I think their goal in life was to to see if if I would survive. And if I survived, they would try it. You know, I remember many times being on the opposite end of, of crying for mercy, you know, and, and, and many times probably didn't receive it, probably didn't deserve it either. I was annoying when I was a kid. Not much has changed. But, uh, but, but you know, I, that, that's something you cry out for, and you think about it in a very serious sense. You, you've messed up your life. You've made a series of decisions that were poor decisions, and your life is falling apart and you don't know what to do. There's nothing you can do. You're in the middle of this deep, dark pit of despair. And what can you cry out for? Nothing you earn. All you can do is cry out to God for mercy. And that's what he wants you to do. But that's, you know, it's something we cry for when we have no other options. It's something we beg for because we know we deserve what we've gotten. We know there's no other hope except to cry for mercy. And then in that moment, it's actually a beautiful place to be because in that moment you look at the cross and you keep looking at the cross and you realize that is exactly what Jesus is offering. Mercy. Uh, Not what I deserve, but what he wants to give me. Grace. A gift that I don't deserve and sparing me the punishment that I do, in fact, deserve. You realize in that moment, the only thing you can do is beg for mercy. Don't we crave mercy down deep inside? I mean, if we're honest, don't, don't we really crave it from others? Um, don't other people in our lives need mercy? I mean, if we look around at the people that we, we come into contact with, or the relationships that we have, I mean, if you're married, um, if you have kids, the people in your life, you need mercy, they need mercy. And, and all of us, we know, if we're honest, we know that we're that none of us in and of ourselves are good. I mean, we're selfish. If we're honest, you know, we, we want what we want. Naturally, we don't think of other people first. You know, we have to be trained to do that. We have to be changed from the inside out, transformed by the power of God to be able to do that. Um, we know we need mercy, and we, we cry for it. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. Um, and we want all of those little things that make us sinful to be ignored uh, and to be accepted despite all of those things. And, and so we all need mercy. Um, but the problem is, Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful. But the problem is, even though we cry out for mercy, many of us were not very receiving of mercy, you know, because it does require humility. And, and, and I think part of it, too, is deep down we know we don't deserve it. Um, but we, we want mercy. The merciful, though, are not interested in recognition. They're not interested in making a name for themselves. They're not interested in honor. Uh, the merciful don't get tangled up in who deserves what or calculations of whether or not their mercy is going to benefit them somehow. If I show this person mercy, will it come back later? Will I get something later in return? The merciful are merciful because they have received merciful, they have received mercy from Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I'm merciful because I've received mercy, and I know I'll receive more mercy from God in the future. The reward is mercy itself. So we have to receive it. If I'm going to give mercy, if I'm going to be merciful, I have to receive it. The next step is I have to choose mercy. I actually have to choose mercy. It requires a conscious choice. In 1989... Off the coast of Alaska, a captain gives his, his first mate, or, or his second mate, uh, an order. The orders were not very clear. Um, it was um, dark. The second mate carries out what he thought were the orders, and as a result, there's a huge collision off the coast. The Exxon Valdez, many of you remember that. I remember that. Um, it, the, the Exxon Valdez ran aground on Bly Reef, and it dumped 11 million gallons of crude oil into one of the most scenic bodies of water in the world. I mean, it was a horrible disaster. Everything was covered. Uh, animals, the sea, I mean, everything was covered with oil. And, and it was all because of a series of mistakes. Um, and so this huge disaster, I mean, animals, the sea, 
Uh, Alaska was infuriated, and Exxon, they were left with, with egg on their face, humiliated, completely humiliated. And, and I remember seeing the pictures, the animals blackened, the, the sea blackened, everything covered with, with oil. Um, and, and it was just, it was just everything, everything that he came into contact with, it, it made it dark, it made it dingy, and a horrible, horrible accident. And as terrible as that wreck was, though, it's nothing in comparison to the collision that takes place between many people every day in relationships. You know, we, you know, make mistakes, we do things that we shouldn't, we're all humans, we fail, um, an argument, a spoken word, somebody doesn't meet your expectations, somebody doesn't follow through on a promise, they, they do something that they say they're not going to do, or that, you know, we're, we're human beings, we mess up, and the result is a collision between your heart and somebody else's actions. And, and the same thing takes place, just like that oil, if you don't show mercy, if you don't forgive, your, your heart, your life becomes coated in bitterness and anger, and everything is, is touched. Everything is affected by that. And we see that. We've experienced it in our lives. We see it between other people. We see it in our culture. Bitterness sets in. It darkens your world. Your outlook on life is affected. Your judgment, your joy. There is no joy in your life. And what you end up with is a, just like that ship, a hole in your heart and a mess on your hands. The wound, maybe it's old. Maybe that's you today, and it's something that's happened a long time ago. Your parents mistreated you. They did something that was horrible. Maybe it was a friend, a teacher, uh, slighted you, or a friend betrayed you in the past. Maybe it's um, a business partner failed or, or walked out on you, or, or maybe your marriage ended, or, or some, somebody did something to you, and it was a long time ago, but you're still carrying around that, that hurt, you're angry. Maybe it's fresh. Maybe someone just did something to you. Maybe a relationship just ended or a friend uh, failed to do something that they promised that they would or, or something happened at work or a spouse betrayed you or something is fresh and it just happened and, and you, you're hurt and it's still raw um, and you're, you're angry, you're mad. The wound is fresh or old, but it's still there and you know it's there and, and you haven't you haven't dealt with it. Part of you is broken. The other part's bitter. Either way, you're angry. You're upset. And so you have a decision. In that moment when it happens, and even if it's in the past, you have a decision. Either I can put the fire out now, forgive, show mercy, or I can fan the flame. And you let it get worse and worse and worse and let that anger, let that bitterness grow. So do I get over it or do I get even? Um, do I forgive or do I get revenge? Do I seek revenge? Do I let my hurts heal or do I let my hurt turn into hate? And, and that, that's resentment. That, this is a good place to, to, to share a definition for resentment. Resentment is when you let your hurt become hate. So you have a decision to make. Am I going to move past it or am I going to let it become resentment? When you allow what's eating you up to eat you up, that's resentment. That's, that's allowing it to take over, allowing hatred and anger and bitterness to set in. Resentment is the deliberate decision to nurse that offense until it becomes a grudge. And then when it, you hold a grudge, it's not enough just to accuse the person. You have to attack that other person's character. You want revenge. You want to get even. And all this does is hurt you. It steals your joy. You think you've got that per person trapped in your prison of unforgiveness. I'll show them, but you're not hurting them. You're hurting yourself. It's stealing your joy. It's causing you pain. It's hurting you in many, many ways. Resentment's like a drug. It, 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 it gets us excited, but the problem with a drug is the more you take, the more you need. And that's the same with resentment. If I nurse it, it's not going to be enough. I'm going to need more and more and more. I've got to feed that resentment. It demands larger doses in order to satisfy anger. Emotion becomes a driving force. Somebody who's bent on revenge, they, want to, to, they, they move further and further away from their relationship with Christ and more and more enveloped in their own world and seeking revenge. And that's why those people who are bitter like to complain a lot. Because they gotta, they got to get a fix. 
They, they want you to listen, and they want, they want affirmation, and they want to gain people on their side, and so it makes them feel good. It's like it's that drug. They need that high, and so the more bitter I become, the more I feed it, and just like a drug, it can cause great harm. It can kill. I mean, it can kill you emotionally. You, you think about it can kill physically. I mean, Anger, chronic anger has been linked with elevated cholesterol, high blood pressure, other, other deadly conditions. Emotionally, it can raise your anxiety levels. It can lead to depression. Spiritually, it's fatal. It starves the soul. Max Lucado says, hatred is the rabid dog that turns on its owner. Revenge is the raging fire that consumes the arsonist. Bitterness is the trap that snares the hunter. But there's good news. We have a choice. We can choose, instead to feed that, we can choose mercy. We can choose mercy, which is what God's calling us to do in this fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful. Those who are merciful to others are blessed. How? Well, they receive mercy. They'll be shown mercy. Forgiving others allows us to see and appreciate more just what God's forgiven us of and and the fact that we don't deserve any of it. And it gives us a greater appreciation for what God has done, and it leads to a greater intimacy with God, which in turn leads to a greater intimacy with other people. Giving grace is the key to understanding grace. Forgiving others is the key to understanding forgiveness. That's why those things go hand in hand. You know, giving mercy is the key to receiving mercy. But we have to make a choice to be merciful. Think about the story of the king that decided to close out all of his accounts in Matthew chapter 18. Everybody that worked for him, he called them in. He wanted to close out all his accounts. Anybody that owed him anything, he was, it, it, was, it was the day to pay. I mean, he was calling them all in. And this one guy, one man, owed an amount that was so large he could never repay it. In, in Matthew 18, 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared... Jesus says to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will repay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. This king, he hears the story. The guy begs for mercy. He has no way to pay for it. He has no other hope, so he begs for mercy. The king shows compassion on him. He forgives the debt. I mean, he, he, he leaves the palace, though, this man. And instead of being grateful, he runs into somebody who owed him a fraction of what he owed the king. He's just received incredible mercy, so what does he do in return? He gets angry with the guy. He starts to choke the guy that owes his money, him money, the slave that owes him money, and he demands that he pays him everything that he owes. Then verse 29. At this, his fellow slave fell face down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. So the person who had just been shown great mercy, who had just been forgiven this huge debt has his debtor thrown in jail. Well, the king finds out, and as you can imagine, he's not too happy about that. This guy's just been shown forgiven a huge debt, far greater than what was owed him, and instead of showing mercy, he has his debtor thrown in jail. The king is furious. And then he says, the king says in verse 32, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow slave? As I had mercy on you, and his master got angry, or shouldn't, shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow slave just as I had mercy on you? His master got angry, handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that he was owed. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not, show, does not forgive his brother from his heart. Now, it's, it leads to a question. How many of us have come to church on Sunday begged for mercy, and then turned right around and, and demanded justice on Monday. God, I know I've done wrong. I know I blew it. I need forgiveness. I beg for mercy. Then somebody wrongs us, and whoa, I can't forgive that. How dare you? But we've all been there. I mean, I know I have. But what Jesus is saying in this parable is how could we ever withhold mercy 
when we think about what we've been forgiven of. We're just like that guy. Our debt was far greater than we could ever pay. There's nothing we could ever do to take away our sin. What we deserve is separation from God. What we deserve is agonizing pain in hell for all of eternity. But God says, no, I know what you deserve, but if you will look to me, I will give you grace. I will withhold that punishment from you. And of course, grace is a gift that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment we do deserve. And so those of us who refuse mercy when we've been received when we've received mercy we're like that guy we're being we're being tortured but we're being tortured by our own anger and our own bitterness and our separation from God even those who are saved if we refuse to show mercy we are going to be tortured by anger and bitterness and all of the effects. And if that's you this morning, if you are, are just bent on getting revenge on not showing mercy, I've just got one question for you. How's it working out for you? Honestly, how are things going in your life? Emotionally, spiritually, with your relationships, how, how's it going? Because if you're a child of God... God's not going to let that go without some sort of correction. And even if you're not, if you're unforgiving, if you're unwilling to receive mercy first, I mean, your life is not going to be full of joy because only joy, joy can only come from a relationship with God. But if we show God's grace and mercy to others, the reward is freedom. It's freedom. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from anger. Freedom from bitterness. Freedom from the need to settle the score, to get revenge, to get even. Forgiveness. We are free, and then we can let those people that we're keeping in the prison of unforgiveness, we can let them out because the truth is we're imprisoning ourselves. You find freedom through forgiveness. And that's, that's why this beatitude Because Jesus knows the key to experiencing freedom in Christ is first to receive mercy and then to show mercy. It's freedom. We have to choose mercy and then show mercy. That's number three. Let me give you, you know, of course, mercy is, is not receiving something, punishment that I deserve. But let me give you like a practical definition of mercy. How does it play out in my everyday life? Well, mercy is an, an emotional response to the needs of others. And, of course, everybody needs mercy. They need forgiveness. But sometimes mercy actually is, is through an action, through an act of service that I perform to somebody that, that you know, do any of us deserve acts of kindness? Well, probably not. Um, something, somebody that can't help themselves. I'm, I'm helping them. I'm doing something for them because they can't help themselves. If you look at the principal Hebrew word for mercy, it actually means to feel the pain of another so deeply that you're compelled to do something about it. You know, in ancient times, it was believed that the heart of the emotions was the intestines. And that's why in the King James, you'll, hear the, you'll read the phrase, bowels of mercy. And, and when we say phrases like, I've got a gut feeling about something, it's the same idea. You know, the idea was that the, the heart of the emotions was in your gut. And, and so w- when we're looking at mercy, it's to, to feel something with everything that you are. The Hebrew concept, bowels of mercy, the idea was that, that I, I, I was able to empathize with you so much I could actually feel your pain. And I did so much so to the point to where I wanted to do something about it. And what we see in Scripture is that mercy is an attribute of the character of God's character. So when we're showing mercy, we're being like God. First Chronicles 21.3 tells us that his mercy is great. Nehemiah 9.31 speaks of your great mercy. Luke 1.78 tells us that Christ came because of the tender mercies of our God. Romans 9.16 says that God's election springs from God's mercy. Ephesians 2.4 says that God is rich in mercy. Even in Hebrews 4.16, it tells us that when we come to Jesus in prayer, we're coming to the throne of grace where we can receive mercy and find grace. According to Titus 3.5, God saved us because of his mercy. And then James 5.11 declares that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What we see is that mercy is a character trait of God. It's an attribute of God. Mercy starts with God and then moves to us. And once we've received it, we have a responsibility to show it. It's about 
us, you and me, showing mercy is about taking on the heart and the character of God. It's about being like God himself, showing the character of Christ in our lives. Remember, the the Beatitudes are the inner qualities of a true disciple. Beginning with this one, the last four really describe the character of a Christian. And just that word Christian means little Christ. It is, I'm a follower of Christ, and so if I'm going to be like Christ, one of the character traits that I have to display is mercy. And again, there's a difference between grace and mercy. Grace is the gift that I don't deserve, the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness. Mercy is not receiving the punishment that I do deserve. Grace covers sin while mercy removes the guilt. Grace is a gift that I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting the eternal punishment that I do deserve. Grace is forgiveness while mercy is restoration. Grace gives us the presence of Christ in my life instead of separation and emptiness for all of eternity. Mercy, when it deals with other people, includes three things, though. If I'm talking about me showing mercy... Let me, let me show you how this progresses here. Mercy means first I see the need. That's recognition. I recognize there's a need in your life. The second is that I'm moved by that need. That's motivation. I see your need and suddenly I'm moved. It moves me because I have the heart of Christ and, and your pain moves me. And then it moves to, I move to meet the need and that's action. So there is recognition, there's motivation, and then there's action. I see it, I'm moved by it, and so I act on it. I I have the ability to meet your need, and so I take action to meet that need. It begins with a simple recognition that there's somebody around you that's hurting. Getting out of my own world, out of my own self, and seeing that somebody around me is hurting. And Jesus told a parable in response, and the parable of the Good Samaritan that proves this truth, and that's that that mercy is love in action. It's, it's love that's seen through acts. And if you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, you see there's this discussion going on. That, that uh, There's a question asked. Jesus tells the story in response to a question that a lawyer asks. And the question is, who is my neighbor? And to answer that question, Jesus tells a story about a man who's going down a road. Now, I've got a picture of this road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. You see that little path that cuts right through there. You can kind of see the cursor. It was a long, very narrow, winding road. It, it dropped 3,500 feet and 22 miles. And as you can see, you can imagine there's a lot of places along that road for creepy crawlies to hide and to jump out and to rob you and beat you and take whatever you had. People didn't like to travel this road. Nobody traveled it alone. Or if you did, you were taking a great risk. So Jesus tells this story about a guy who does just that, and he gets attacked. As a matter of fact, the Jews called this road the bloody way because it was so well-known for crime. I mean, it was just there were too many places for, for criminals to hide and to rob people going down that road. So Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. He looked... He took up the question, who's my neighbor? And he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, down that road, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. The priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Didn't bother to help. But then a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He saw him... He saw his need. He was moved by his need. He has compassion. But then he takes action. He went over to him. He bandaged his wounds. Didn't avoid him. Didn't go to the other side of the road. He bandaged his wounds, poured on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. So he goes above and beyond. He helps him, and then he goes beyond. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The lawyer says, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Now again, Jesus is intentional in everything he does. He uses a Samaritan here. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Not only would they not say, would they not speak of Samaritans, they wouldn't even say the word Samaritan, which is why 
When Jesus says which person had, which one was a neighbor to him, the lawyer says the one who had mercy. He won't even say the word Samaritan. That's how bad Jews hated Samaritans. And so he, Jesus, as he does, he, he tells this, this story, this parable brilliantly. He, he uses contrasts here, and he, and he says, you know, he, the person you think is your neighbor may not actually be your neighbor. What's the definition of somebody who shows, uh, who's a neighbor? It's somebody who's willing to show mercy, who's willing to meet a need when they have the opportunity to do that. The Samaritan was the one who, st- it wasn't the other people, and you would have thought it would have been the Levite, you would have thought, but no, it was the Samaritan, the least likely candidate in that Jewish person's, that lawyer's mind. But the person who meets the need, that's the person who is the neighbor, the person who shows mercy. And so the question for us is, is that how will we respond when we encounter people with needs? How will we respond to the needs of others in our busy lives, in the midst of a pandemic, when all of, a lot of us are hurting in a lot of ways, are confused, when we're presented with someone else, their need, how will we respond? Are we looking? Are we even able to get outside of our own little box right now? And look at the people around us and meet their need from six feet away. There's obstacles, right? That's why I say that. We've got obstacles, but we're still called to show mercy. So how are we doing that? Are we responding to the needs of others? Are we meeting the needs of others? There are people in our lives who need mercy. And it may not always be the people that you think. I brought a couple of bananas to illustrate that. You know, you go to a to, maybe you go to your cupboard or whatever, your bowl, your fruit bowl. We've got a fruit bowl on the counter, and you look for a banana. You go look for a banana. What are you going to look for? And look for one that's ripe but not too ripe. So if you were to pick this banana up, what might you do? I mean, maybe some banana pudding, right? But you're going to probably take this one and toss it in the trash. I mean, you look at it from the appearance, and it doesn't look like much. But I got news for you. This is not black because it's bad. It's black because I painted it last night. <laughs> See, all the paint flakes, but the banana itself is, is perfectly fine. It's only the paint. <laughs> Just a little hint of enamel there. Other than that, it's great. This proves the point, right? You can't judge a book by its cover. Things are not always as they appear. Now, what about this one? This one looks okay, right? It looks good. It's a little bit, it's got a few marks on it, but, you know, that's kind of what I look for. I don't want it green. I don't want it too yellow, but I don't want it too black either. So if I'm going to the bowl, I'm looking for this banana, I'm thinking, hey, this one's a pretty good candidate. Now, y'all remember, I showed y'all a while back how to open a banana, right? You don't open it this way. You open it this way. So let's open this banana and see how it measures up. Y'all know there's got to be a trick, right? This one looks good. But once you get it open, it's not so good. It's falling apart. It's not quite, sorry. <laughs> Somebody apologizes to the cleaning crew for me. It's not quite what you would think. It's falling apart on the inside. Another one I prepared this morning. I didn't bring it in here because it was just a huge mess. I dropped something on it. It was all mushy inside. It looked good on the outside, but it, didn't, it wasn't so great on the inside, so I left it. So... Sometimes we look at people and we make judgments. Oftentimes we do, don't we? And, it's, you know, those of us who are able to get past it, we're just simply able to get past the initial judgment that we form in our minds. Somebody may look like they've got it all together, but they're actually falling apart on the inside. And what they need is somebody to show them a little bit of grace, a little bit of mercy. You know, somebody that we may see that looks like, man, there's no, no way they've got it all together. They, they are some of the most merciful people you'll ever meet. point is, you don't know where anybody in your life is. I don't know what anybody that I encounter is really going through, other than what they reveal to me, what they show. And we're pretty good at, at putting on faces. We all need to be ready and willing to show mercy. We've got to be willing to meet the needs of the people around us, regardless of what we're going through in our own lives. Because somebody just, their life might just be falling apart. And all they need is a little bit of encouragement. All they need is a little bit of love. All they need is for you to look over maybe some of, of, of what they're doing, understanding that, 
that you know, even if they hurt you, right? Because you've heard the phrase, you know why people hurt each other? A lot of times it's hurting people hurt people. It's because they're hurting. And maybe just, maybe there's something they're going through. And so Jesus says, show mercy. Lloyd Ogilvie said, we constantly meet people who need us and whom we need. People with needs are not burdens. They are gifts from God to give away what God has given to us. An opportunity to give away what God has given to us. So who's my neighbor? Well, the original question Jesus was asked, my neighbor is someone in need who crosses my path, whose need I'm able to meet. That's your neighbor. Somebody that you're able to minister to, a need that you're able to meet. And finally, Jesus says, go and do the same. That's what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to show mercy. But there's a reward. And the reward is that we receive mercy. So it's reciprocal. We begin, we end where we started. Right? I mean, this is the only beatitude this way. I mean, those who are mourned, they're comforted. And those who, you know, who are meek, they inherit the earth. Those who are poor in spirit, they receive the kingdom of God, but those who are merciful, they receive exactly what they show. We receive mercy. It begins and it ends with mercy. And it's not just that Jesus couldn't think of anything better to say here. It's not like he ran out of stuff to say. He, it's, there's, there's the point here. It all pivots. The key, is, and to key, the key to receiving mercy is showing mercy because then I truly understand mercy. And then once I show mercy, I receive more mercy. And we see scriptures like this throughout the Bible. Uh, the, it's the law of reciprocity. We see it in, Luke, or in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Luke 6.38, or 6, give and it will be given to you. You, you receive what you give. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Same principle. And the golden rule, of course, in Luke chapter 6, 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. I receive mercy from God. I show mercy to others, and I receive more mercy from God. Warren Wiersbe says, mercy is a bridge God built to mankind. Mercy is a bridge we build toward others. You know, God's saying here, I'm showing you mercy in order to build a bridge between you and me. Now let me, let me instruct you, let you go and show that same mercy to others and, and watch the bridges built between you and other people. I mean, how do you get somebody's attention if you want to share the gospel with them, if you want to make an impact in their lives? I mean, follow Jesus' example, you know, meet a need, serve them, and then share with them why you did what you did. It's mercy. Others may not recognize it. And you remember, you, we live in a fallen world. Matter of fact, if you look at the eighth beatitude, you're, you're likely to get, get uh, persecuted because of it by serving the Lord. So others may not recognize it. They may not understand it. They may doubt why you're doing it. So why do it? Well, the reason we do it is because we think about what Jesus did for us. It's all, it starts with God, it ends with God. We think about the mercy he's shown us. We think about him on the cross to the very end. As he prepared to give his last breath, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We think about the price he paid, the mercy he showed, and we should be eager to show mercy. And then we think about the fact that he promises more mercy and more mercy. And as we show mercy, we receive mercy. Five days before Christmas in 1943, two enemy pilots came in contact with each other, but not in the way you would think. It was an American pilot and a German pilot. Uh, the German pilot's name was, was Franz Stigler. He was uh, first lieutenant, second lieutenant. Um, he was an ace. I mean, he was decorated. Uh, one more kill and he would have gotten the Knight's Cross, which was Germany's highest honor for valor. One more kill is all it took. The other guy, an American pilot, Charles Brown, 21 years old, young guy who's flying a B-17 bomber. He had just been attacked by fighter pilots. His plane was shot up. His gunner was dead. Several others wounded. And he's flying, just trying to make it back to safety. Franz is on the ground. He sees this, this B-17, and he thinks, I've got it. This is it. This is my chance. I'm going to get that, that, that last kill. 
So he salutes his ground crew, he takes off, and he, he decides that the best route is to attack from the rear. But as he, as he flies up behind the B-17, he, see, he realizes something. They're not shooting at him. He's not receiving fire. And he looks and he notices that the reason he's not receiving fire is because the tail gunner's dead. And the back part of the plane is not there. He can see inside the plane, and he sees that medics are working on other guys in the plane. And he just can't do it. He just can't open fire. He, he, he decides in his mind it would just be murder. It's not fair. So he flies up beside Charles Brown. They can see each other through the window. Charles Brown looks at him, looks at his co-pilot, and says, That's it, man. We're done. We have no way to defend ourselves. But instead, the German pilot, Franz, looks at Charles. He nods at him to let him know it's okay. And he begins to fly in formation with him. You see, the Germans had B-17s too, and he knew that if his men on the ground saw him flying in formation, they wouldn't shoot at him. They wouldn't, they wouldn't shoot at him from the ground. So he flies in formation until he gets to safety. Franz salutes Charles, and they fly off, possibly never to see each other again. For years, they wondered what happened to each other. And after the war was over, Franz's brother had been killed prior to that. His friends had been killed in war. Eventually, he moved to Canada. He was exiled after the war. I mean, he lost everything. But he said the one good thing he did, the one good thing that came out of that war was that he saved Charles Brown and his men's life. Well, in 1990, they were reunited. They met in a hotel. Franz he was asked, he said, what do you think of Charles Brown? And he started to choke back tears, and he couldn't, couldn't say anything except he looked at Charles and he said, I love you. That was it. He had lost a brother and he had gained a brother through that act of mercy. That act of mercy. They became fishing buddies and they both said that the greatest thing that came from that war was the fact that they met each other. The fact that that life was saved, that those lives were saved. The only good that he could say came from all of that pain, all of that struggle, all of that hurt. All of that death, the one good thing that came from that was, Franz said, showing that act of mercy and saving those men's lives. You think about our lives in this world that we live in and the daily struggle that we face, the, the spiritual warfare that goes on and on and on, the countless lives that are injured, the countless lives that are lost. I mean, the trials, the tribulations, the struggles, the pain, the, the broken relationships, in the midst of all of that, Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, in the greatest act of mercy known to man, gave his life so that we could be free from all of this, so that we could be free from sin. And it just may be that at the end of your life, in the midst of spiritual warfare, in the midst of the battle, day-to-day -day battle, that the greatest thing that will ever come of it will be you showing that same mercy to somebody else. That it may just, just, just may save their life. If only we're willing. If only we can follow Jesus' command, his advice. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We receive mercy and forgiveness of sin, and then we receive mercy daily. As we fall on our face, he picks us back up. As we attempt to do things for him, he strengthens us and equips us. And then, of course, when we leave this earth, we see him face to face. Mercy. Grace. Jesus says, go and do the same. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this life, it may just be the only good thing that, you, that comes out of it is the mercy you've received and the mercy you give. And I pray that you've received that mercy today. I mean, you know, the step, first step and the last step is receiving mercy, right? And that comes, can only come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, he's offering you mercy right now. If you do know him, then what are you doing to show mercy in your life every day? You know, I think we should live in appreciation, live in awe of what God has done for us and continues to do. And so as we finish this time together, this time of study. We're just going to go before the Lord. And, and, and let me just encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. I mean, wherever you are in this, I mean, 
if you haven't received mercy, cry out to God for mercy right now. If you have received mercy, who is it that God is placing in your life that, that you need to show mercy? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's forgiveness you need to offer. Maybe it's a bridge that needs to be mended. Um, whatever it is, just allow the Lord to show you how to apply this today. Father, we come before you and we recognize that mercy is something, grace is something we don't deserve and mercy is not getting the punishment we do deserve and we recognize that we all deserve punishment. We deserve to be separated from you. We deserve so much worse than we receive. Instead, we receive love and forgiveness and grace. Lord, there's nothing we can ever do to repay you for what you've done for us. We think about your death on the cross and we look to the cross and we see the pain and the suffering, the agony that we can only imagine that you went through. Not just the physical pain, yes, but the pain of taking on our sin. Your separation from the Father, albeit for a moment, very real. The wrath of God coming down on you instead of us. We deserve it, but you took it. And you did it because of your love. No other reason than the fact that you, you love us. And in doing so, you were glorified. Your creation restored. Giving us a new life and, and, and transforming us from the inside out so that we can once again bring you glory and honor by the way that we live. And, and part of that is our willingness to show the same mercy to others that you've shown to us. And God, I, I can't imagine, although I've been guilty myself, I don't understand why we could ever think for a moment that we have the right to withhold that from others, considering what we've received. But I'm so thankful that we've received it. And God, if there's somebody out there today, somebody in this room who knows right in this moment, they don't have all the answers to life, but they know they need mercy. They want a relationship with you. They don't know how to get it other than just to cry out to you. And that's exactly what they need to do in this moment. Your word tells us that we are all sinful. We've all fallen short of your glory. And there's nothing we can do to bridge the gap that, that exists between us and you. That exists because of our sin. There's nothing we can do. But thankfully, you've done what's necessary. You can and you have paid the price. And if we will cry out to you for forgiveness and accept the salvation that's possible through your death, your burial, your resurrection, we can be saved. And if there's somebody here today at home watching this and they know that what they've been doing has not been working, they know that, that you are missing from their lives, I pray that they would just cry out to you for mercy right now. And God, I know you are eager and waiting and willing to give them just that. For those of us who know mercy, may we be eager and willing to show it whenever we have the opportunity. God, we thank you for your love. More than we could ever deserve. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.